I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to After Kim Jong-il, America and the Two Koreas on America Abroad. I'm joined now by two experts to talk about what Kim Jong-il's death will mean for the future relations between the United States and the two Koreas, and what, if any, kind of changes we're likely to see coming out of North Korea. Victor Cha is Director of Asian Studies at Georgetown University and was formerly Director of Asian Affairs at the White House's National Security Council. And Scott Snyder is Senior Fellow for Korea Studies and Director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Victor Cha, what Kim Jong-un has only very recently uh, taken the reins as the new leader of North Korea, uh, what have you seen so far that you expected to happen? Um, And have there been any surprises in this short reign so far? Well, Ray, I think right now what we've seen is a rushed, but what looks like a very orderly transition of power. And so we've seen lots of propaganda putting this young fellow out on stage on white horses to try to establish himself in the eyes of the public in North Korea more than I think the outside world, really, uh, that he is clearly the third dynastic successor of this dark kingdom. Um, I guess the only thing that would be surprising to me is that uh, thus far, it looks as though it has been pretty orderly. Uh, But I say that with a bit of skepticism because we are only weeks into this process. And that is a nanosecond in the broader scheme of history when we think about dictatorships that have failed when they've gone through a transition process. So we're still a long way from the end now, but they do appear to be carrying out this process um, uh, rather in a very orderly fashion. Scott Snyder, do you share Victor Cha's skepticism? I am still also waiting to see how this plays out. It is, it is early days, and there is a lot that could be happening under the surface. Uh, that's the challenge, I think, with North Korea is that we know so little about the interpersonal interactions at the very top uh, and about the leadership uh, decision-making process at the top. And so, yes, there's a new face But one can imagine any number of conflicts and struggles that could be going on under the surface behind that face. One of the features of the Korea debate over the last several decades was the idea that reunification was in the cards, was one of the uh, things on the table in some sort of Korean endgame. Is that still the case anymore? Earlier in the program, we heard in Daniel Shin's report that there's strengthening ambivalence about reunification among young South Koreans. It was difficult in Germany, where the gulf between the two Germanys wasn't even as wide as it is between the two Koreas. Is reunification in the cards, Victor Cha? Um, Well, it's a good question. You know, I think it's hard not to think about unification, given the fact that we're talking about, you know, the sudden death of a dictator and the attempt to hand over power to a young and inexperienced son when the economy is in shambles. So it's hard not to think about that possibility. Uh, I would agree with, um, uh, with Daniel that the, uh, among South Koreans, it's a very difficult thing for them to fathom because they are a very successful society today. And the notion of being saddled with the economic and social burden of trying to integrate a population that has been isolated from the world for the past 60 years is just something they don't want to contemplate. Now, having said that, Historically, change has come to the Korean Peninsula in dramatic fashion. It has never come gradually. And therefore, you know, 
even if the South Koreans don't want it, it could fall into their lap. Unification could fall into their lap. I think the current government in South Korea understands that and has been trying to both uh, increase a dialogue with their own citizens about this possibility and about the importance of being prepared, both mentally and financially, um, should this should this day come. Uh, no one is trying to collapse North Korea, but then again, it may collapse of its own weight, in which case uh, the South Korean public has to be ready for something like that. Victor Cha, you were formerly deputy head of the delegation to the six-party talks. How likely is it that they can resume, and how likely is it that they can accomplish anything? This international effort to restrain and channel a restless North Korea. Right now, it doesn't look very likely because uh, the the various efforts that the U.S. has tried to make um, to begin a process to bring the North Koreans back to the talks all seem to have been put on hold after the death of Kim Jong-il. In fact, um, I think there were, in the week that there were supposed to be, in the week of Kim Jong-il's death, there were supposed to be more negotiations between the United States and the North Koreans to reach uh, some agreements that would enable them to get back to the six-party talks. All that has been put on hold for now, and it's hard to say at what point they will uh, resume. The bigger question, of course, is after if we are to get back to six-party talks, what does everybody want in the end of those talks? Ostensibly, what we all want is a, an, an agreement like the one we negotiated in 2005 to try to get them to give up their nuclear weapons. But after two nuclear tests and 25 years of negotiations, I think there are very few people in Washington, in Seoul, or for that matter, even in Beijing, that really believe these talks will lead to the full denuclearization of North Korea. Scott Snyder, there's been speculation during the presidential campaign that uh, the United States has it within its power to keep North Korea from strengthening its hand as a nuclear power. Does it? Can the United States stop North Korea from going nuclear? Um, I think that the right way of saying it is that uh, the United States has not uh, stopped North Korea from going nuclear. Uh, so we have a dilemma here. The reality on the ground is different from what the U.S. government says it's willing to accept. Uh, and the prospect of achieving any kind of rollback in the near term, as Victor has suggested, is not very positive. And so that's one reason why, uh, you know, essentially what the administration has done has, has been to try to get the North Koreans to come back to where they were before they engage in talks. But it's awfully hard to erase a nuclear test or a missile test. It's hard to get back to the status quo ante uh, because the North Koreans, I think, believe they've changed the strategic reality in their favor. Victor, we saw South Korea reach out to the North in the weeks after Mr. Kim's death about reopening a dialogue with the North. The ruling party in South Korea announced its platform for upcoming parliamentary elections that included a softened stance for North Korea. What kind of response? Has there been any coherent response from the North to those overtures? Uh, no. There ha- there, well, there has been a response, and it's been thus far it's been entirely in the negative, which is that they, uh, they don't really seek to desire the desire to work with the current government. Um, I'm sure they're going to watch very closely uh, these elections in South Korea. We have two elections in South Korea this year. We have the legislative elections, and then we have the presidential elections. And uh, North Korea is going to be watching that very closely, probably with the hope that they can somehow uh, get a progressive government 
in, in power in South Korea that will go back to the policies of unconditional engagement that Scott uh, described earlier. So I think right now they're in a wait-and-see mode, uh, but at the same time they would love to see a progressive government return to power in South Korea. Well, I'd like to close by getting both your predictions for those elections. Um, What impact will these have on the relations with the North and with the U.S., Scott? Well, I think that uh, the fact that both governments uh, will have new leaders uh, can open a potential opportunity for uh, at least stabilization of that relationship. However, there's also a history to the relationship of decades that is going to be very hard to overcome. Uh, And the core issues uh, at stake, the question of whether North Korea remains nuclear and can threaten South Korea, the question of um, how feasible is peaceful coexistence, those are issues in the background that I think are still going to be very difficult uh, for both uh, leaders uh, to manage. Uh, especially in a South Korean context where a president has to meet public expectations. And Victor? Well, you know, I think the key, regardless of what governments come in in South Korea and the United States in, in 2012, uh, the key problem that they face, I think, is the same. And it's a it's one of great magnitude. I mean, I think on the one hand, there is the policy problem of how you deal with this regime and try to get it to give up its nuclear weapons. But the bigger question, the really the you know the sixty-five million dollar question is, are we going to be ready if this power succession doesn't work? As we said at the very beginning of our discussion, transitional governments throughout history have lasted six weeks, six months, sometimes more than a year before they've come apart. Um, and so the challenge I think for the next governments in the United States and South Korea is they have to think about that potential reality just as they have to think about dealing with this ornery regime on a day-to-day basis, they have to think about the bigger question and being prepared to deal with that bigger question should it come. My personal view is that it will come and that it will be the burden of the next president, the 45th president of the United States and the next president of South Korea. Victor Cha is director of Asian studies at Georgetown University. He's also author of the forthcoming book, The Impossible State, North Korea, Past and Future. Thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure, Ray. And Scott Snyder is Senior Fellow for Korea Studies and Director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of The U.S.-South Korea Alliance, Meeting New Security Challenges. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Ray. You've been listening to After Kim Jong-il, America and the Two Koreas, Visit us on the web at americaabroad.org to sign up for our monthly podcast. There you'll also find photos from North Korea and a video interview with Adam Johnson, author of the highly acclaimed novel The Orphan Master's Son, a thriller and love story set in North Korea. Even if people's true desires and needs are stored away long term in the in the deep freezer of the North Korean experience, I believe they can be thought out. I believe they can be brought to life. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Our program was produced by Monica Bushman, Lisa Schroeder, Daniel Shin, and Flawn Williams. Additional production help came from Robert Frazier at Monitor Studios. Steve Martin is our director of broadcasting and station relations. 4P Suit composed our theme music. I'm Ray Suarez. This is America Abroad from Public Radio International.
Support for this program is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Stewart Family Foundation, and the American Interest, a magazine devoted to illuminating America's global role. Support also comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.